This is the Scott Bradley Show podcast. You've been outside this week. In the last week or so, you felt what's going on outside. So a number of years ago, I'm talking about the cold, of course. A number of years ago, I heard an interview with Mark Burnett. He's the guy, you may be familiar with Mark Burnett, with his work anyway. He's the guy who is the producer, the, the brains, I guess, behind Survivor. He was the guy who really pulled the whole thing together, that successful TV show. And somebody asked him at one point, why we've never seen a season of Survivor in the cold. We always see it in some sort of tropical country. Why have we never flipped it up and changed it around and tried to put the people in an uncomfortable position by having them have to survive in the cold? And his answer was pretty simple. Well, it's kind of a two-part answer. A, who wants to see that? And B, they won't do anything. They'll just simply be huddling around trying to stay warm. Nothing will happen. Well, our bodies really do react differently, have a different Things go different with our bodies when it is freezing cold, which we're all being reminded of right now. Well, to help explain what exactly it is, since we know things are happening to our bodies, but we don't really know what, we just know it's stinking cold and uncomfortable. Dr. Stephen Chung is a Brock University kinesiology professor. He is the Canada Research Chair in Environmental Ergonomics, and he studies, among other things, the effects of environmental stresses on human physiology, including appropriately for us today, cold. Dr. Chung joins us now. Doctor, thanks for doing this today. Oh, you're very welcome, Scott. You keep him warm? Oh, I, well, I'm trying to. I'm trying to, but I, I, you know, I'm sitting here going through this thinking, is there anybody who actually likes these temperatures? Is there, honestly, is there anybody you hear from who really likes the kind of temperatures we've been experiencing? Uh, I, I don't really <laughs> uh, think so. I know I'm not exactly uh, well built for the cold and I don't tolerate it well myself so yeah it's ironic that this is one of the main things that I study but no it's uh, most people if you ask them they would prefer to go to a nice tropical paradise and not necessarily up uh, into the extreme north to uh where they have to bundle up. That's true. We don't have a lot of travel agencies that package the uh, the getaways to the Arctic. I mean, there's a few if you <laughs> want to see penguins, but you're right. Most of them are the Caribbean or somewhere else that is warm, and that's that's for a reason, right? I mean, they, our bodies do better, it seems, in the heat. Yeah, absolutely. We as as we've evolved, we are able to adapt very well to the heat. Uh, our bodies can produce a lot of changes to help us adapt better to the heat, but it's not so much the case in the cold. It's always a high level of stress on people when they're cold. You're shivering, you're uncomfortable, uh, you're having to burn so much energy to maintain heat in your body that it's just not really an overly comfortable experience. Luckily, the one thing humans are able to do is we're able to use technology. We're able to use clothing uh, or or fire or heat and other ways to to keep warm. That's really our main strategy. Okay, so when I asked you a second ago whether there's anybody who actually likes the cold temperature, as you were answering no, and, and believe me, I hate it. I, I am a warm weather person. Ben, through the glass here, who you talked to when you were about to come on, who called you up, he's got his hand up. He really likes the cold, and so I'm. there are people who do, I guess. And I'm wondering, is that because of physiological differences? Do the people who like the cold or do better in the cold, is that a physiological difference or is that something they've just grown accustomed to? What makes us different with our abilities to tolerate these temperatures? I think it's really a mix of both things. Some are, some changes are physiological. Some people just uh, 
don't feel as cold when they are out in a cold environment as maybe you or I. But a lot of it is probably psychological and cultural. If you grew up in the north or you grew up in Winnipeg, you know, you're used to the culture, you're used to saying, I'm from a cold environment and I should be used to it, as opposed to if you were, let's say, somebody coming from Jamaica and, uh, and have never really experienced cold before and never grew up in the cold, your whole perception of it is a lot different. So there's both physiological and I'm sure there's a big cultural, psychological component too. But are there, are there actual physiological things that do happen? I mean, when you talk about cultural things, so let's say I grew up in Jamaica, people always say, oh, my blood thinned out because it's so warm. Are, I mean, are there specific things we can point to besides layers of blubber, I suppose, which would be the, one of the ones, but are there specific things that change if you come from a warm weather climate in your body compared to those from a cold weather place? Um, not really too much. Again, our bodies don't adapt in terms of long-term changes a huge amount to the cold compared to what we can do in the heat. Um, so a lot of it, I believe, is kind of cultural, psychological. We know there are some kind of race-specific differences uh, in, say, skin blood flow and in especially the risk of frostbite injuries, and they do tend to be in African kind of uh, natives, tend to be higher risk because they do have reduced blood flow in their hands in general. So we do know there are some broad differences like that, but uh, but in terms of how quickly someone is necessarily going to cool in the cold, there's, uh, you know, given two people of kind of the same body build, it's not really going to be a matter of race. But you're right, when you talk about blubber and you talk about fat, that is obviously one of the things that is going to make you cool off less quickly than someone who is very, very skinny and may not have a lot of fat. So, yeah, there, that is one difference. And then also really big people, just because they have more mass in general, it could be very muscular, uh, they will also cool off slower because they just have a bigger mass and less skin surface area. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 6 to 8, only on 900 CHML. Continuing our conversation with Dr. Stephen Chung from Brock University, who is a kinesiology prof who studies environmental stresses on the human body, including extreme cold. And um, doctor, what, what does happen? Walk us through what happens physiologically in our body when we get really cold. What changes in us? Sure. The first thing that happens is that your skin sensors start firing, saying the skin is getting cold. So in response, the blood vessels in your skin start closing down because your body is really trying to conserve uh, the heat that's going to your core, to your heart, to your lungs, to your brain. It's kind of being selfish that way and saying, I can live without my arms and my, <laughs> my legs. I can't really live without heart, lungs, and brain. So it's kind of shunting all the warm blood over to those those places. So that is why your hands and fingers start getting white and your skin looks very uh, pale because the skin blood vessels are closing down. So that is your first line of defense, this vasoconstriction is closing off of your skin blood vessels. And then as you start cooling down even more, then the body is going to say, okay, well, that's not helping me enough. I need to start generating heat. So that's where you start having shivering. 
And what shivering is really trying to do is trying to generate a lot of heat in your body. And it's quite effective in that. And that's really our main defense against the cold. It's really uncomfortable. You're bouncing up and down. You can't can't have good coordination, but it is your body trying to generate as much heat as possible to, to prevent hypothermia. Now, what happens to our muscles, though? Because there is, we de- definitely, it feels when we're out in the severe cold, like our muscles get stiff all of a sudden, and we may not have worked out, we may have done nothing, and yet it feels like we have. What's going on in our muscles? Um, well, what's happening there is, again, you have less blood flow because, again, you're your body is trying to keep the uh, blood into the core, into your uh, heart and lungs and your brain. So there's less blood, but also the it starts cooling the muscles and therefore it becomes stiffer. So it's also harder to control. So that, those are two of the things that's going on. It's harder for you to use your muscles because they're stiff and also because there's less blood flow. So every bit of inner, of work that you do in a way it's harder because of that. So that's actually one of the big challenges. If you are, you can't use your hands in the cold, a lot of times that's what brings you into trouble so that you can't you know, zip your jacket up. You can't open up, say, a flare package if you are lost and trying to signal. So a lot of our work is really trying to study not just what happens when your whole body is cold, but what happens in those emergency survival situations where your hands are really cold and you can't use them properly because that's going to put you into the biggest risk. I've always wanted to ask someone this, and it seems like the perfect time. You are the perfect person to ask this of. We know that the uh, CFL, the playoffs, ended a a month and a half ago or so with the Grey Cup. Freezing cold day in Ottawa. Lots of snow, lots of players wearing short sleeves and exposing their skin. Now we know the NFL playoffs are here, and a lot of places are going to be cold weather games, and a lot of guys, no sleeves, no mitts, no nothing, showing clearly trying to show that they are tough and impervious to the elements and intimidate the other team by showing that you know mere cold isn't going to get me. But with what you're saying, as much as that may be an intimidation factor of sorts, I suppose, does it not make a lot of sense that if they really wanted to perform at their absolute best, they should be a lot more covered up and say, to heck with showing off how tough I am? Yeah, absolutely. From a purely physical perspective, they are not being able to use their muscles as well. And so they are being impaired and they're not able to perform as well. So if I was advising them, I would say, you know, again, like you say, Forget the showing off. That part's good and all, but if you actually truly want to perform, you want to keep your muscles as warm as possible, especially for a strength and power sport like uh, like football, which is not necessarily about long-term endurance and where you're generating a ton of heat, but it's all about that pure strength and power. We know you want your muscles as warm as possible to, to have the greatest strength and power. So, so yeah, psychologically, are, psychologically, you just can't will yourself to be warm. There are some people that claim you can. There's a guy named Wim Hof in the Netherlands who literally, he, his nickname is the Iceman, and he'll sit in cold water for a long time and apparently not cool off at all, and he claims it's all mind over matter, and... And uh, I think the jury is still out on whether that guy is just an exceptional uh, case or not. But that's uh, that's his shtick. He'll, he'll go and sit in ice water, he'll go out in the cold, and, 
and he claims it's all in his mind. Well, uh, you know what? I'll let him do that research. I'll pass on that one personally. Uh, got 20 seconds here. Last thing. We've all had our mothers tell us, put on a toque because 80% of the heat in your body escapes through your head. You can't go out without a toque on. Is that actually true? Yeah, your mom is absolutely correct. You are going to lose a lot of heat from your head because those skin blood vessels, they tend not to uh, shut off when you are cold. So there's still a lot of warm blood going to your face and your head, and you're going to lose a lot of heat from there. So it's legit. You do have to wear a toque when you go out. Mom sometimes can be right. (laughs) Stephen Chung, uh, Brock University Kinesiology Prof. Really appreciate the time today. Thanks for doing this. You're very welcome, Scott. Have a great day. You too. Stay warm. Uh, That is, um, there you go. Put on the toque. Stay in the warm. Even if you're a tough football player, you cannot perform at your best wearing short sleeves when it's 400 below zero. Just saying. Unless you're the Iceman in Norway or wherever he was. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show. Weeknights from 6 to 8. Only on 900 CHML. We are headed, as you know, towards legalizing marijuana in this country. I don't think we have the exact date yet. But it's coming down the pipe. The Trudeau government has said they're going to do this, and the province has now put some guidelines in place, and on and on and on. In fact, New Year's Eve, I don't know if you tuned into CNN at all on New Year's Eve. Uh, a little bit bonkers what CNN was doing this time. They had a reporter in Colorado talking about California legalizing it, and she was in a place where she was passing around joints and lighting up a bong and showing people at home how to do it. So I guess this is CNN's new thing now, the Cannabis News Network. I'm not sure. Anyway. This is going to come, when it comes here, this is going to come with some costs. The question is going to be, who is going to pay for this? Well, one city councillor knows who he doesn't want paying for it. That is the city of Hamilton. we got enough to pay for. So Councillor Sam Marula is going to be bringing forward a motion asking the province and federal government to come through with some of the costs, cover some of the costs that the city is going to be forced to absorb uh, to cover and to change and to implement all these new policies. Councillor Marula joins me now. Councillor, thanks for doing this today. Oh, my pleasure, Scotty. Happy New Year, and uh, you win the award. You're the first city councillor on in 2018, so... There you go. Yeah, Thank golf you. clap for Councillor Sam Marula. There you go. Well done. Um, I think a lot of people certainly have been talking about this and thinking about the fact that we're heading towards legalization and talking about, we hear about all the revenues this is going to bring in. I don't think a lot of people have given a lot of thought to the fact there will be costs associated with this. Well, and that's the, that's the problem that we're faced with. Um, a lot of people don't recognize, and I think I've spoken about this on a number of fronts, is that downloading uh, from the provincial government, meaning any mandatory program that's, that we as a city have to provide, uh, comes with a, an attached obligation financially. At present, 50% of what we tax for, we don't control. We're mandated to provide it, but it's not revenue neutral as promised. And actually, it actually it, we have to go to the general levy in order to pay for those programs. It becomes regressive in nature, and it really makes us very unsustainable. So here we have a, a situation where everyone's talking about this huge financial windfall uh, for the province, but the reality is their windfall becomes our financial deficit in that for every action there's going to be a reaction. And and when it comes to cannabis or the legalization for recreational purposes of cannabis, there will be a part of our functioning operating system in the city that will now be burdened by this fact. In what way? Like what are some of the things that you're going to have to do or the city's going to have to do that are going to cost money? Okay. Uh, Policing, uh, licensing, um, Anything related to public health, 
uh, aspects related to the use, no different than alcohol and or other drug use. Um, so all of these aspects and services that we provide as a city, uh, there will be a cost associated with it. So the motion that I'm bringing forward clearly illustrates that we know that there will be a cost. No one's disputing that fact. The fact that we're not aware of is what will that impact be? And uh, and how will the province come to the plate in order to share this so-called windfall that they're going to be receiving at our expense? As it stands right now, uh, it is obviously it is your understanding that the city will be expected to absorb those costs, though. Those are things you have to do. Well, well that's the problem. So these, these are services that we provide. But at present, we provide it not on the premise that we have legalized uh, cannabis. So because of the legalization of cannabis, there will be a revenue created for the province. The question becomes, what part or portion of that revenue will be directed to mitigate what we do at the city? Uh, as I mentioned, half of what we tax for. So if you're, if you're taxed $5,000 a year in, in municipal taxes, half of that we don't control. It's nothing to do with city council, everything to do with the province, because over the years, it just keeps on piling on all of these types of initiatives. So this is why this is important that we get ahead of this so that a year or two or three down the road, the department is spending money like drunken sailors and making it accordingly. Uh, and we're paying for it because of the services uh, or the demand in our services. Um, so clearly this notion, what it does, it identifies the problem. It brings everyone to the table, including the police services and licensing and public health. Uh, to basically itemize, assess, and determine what those additional pressures will be, what it will cost, and how the province so is expected to pay for it. Also, when you look at uh, the billion dollars a year that they're foreseeing, uh, it's important that we recognize that that money being used for anything outside of addictions and, and public health is really irresponsible. Not too dissimilar to what they do with the LCBO. So the hundreds of millions of dollars they make at the LCBO, it's not billions, go into the general pot and it can spend for it and on anything. What it should be spent on is related consequences of alcohol abuse, which, by the way, uh, is the number one abuse drug, not only in Ontario, but in Canada, causing the most societal problems. So technically speaking, part of this will be a discussion about the province earmarking those monies directly to health care. Do we get Sam right now? Right now, do we get provincial, federal money specifically designated to the city of Hamilton to deal with alcohol abuse or gambling abuse or any of those kind of abuses that the higher levels of government have sanctioned? We do. Uh, so, the Addiction Assessment Services of Hamilton is to our public health department, which is one hundred percent funded by the province. So, so now that that is the reason why that exists is for the very reason I'm bringing up the the issues surrounding other pressures within. The city, but once we once we decriminalize it, once we legalize it, the probability is we're going to have an increase of usage. With that increase of usage, not too dissimilar to alcohol and or tobacco, you're going to have an increase of consequences. What those consequences are, we're not aware of. What the cost of those consequences and providing services for that, we're unaware of. Hence, getting it, getting ahead of this issue, assessing it, putting a plan together, puts everyone in a better situation. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 6 to 8, only on 900 CHML. Chatting with Councillor Sam Rula about a motion that he is bringing forward to try and get the provincial and federal governments to ante up a little bit of the money to cover the costs that are going to be associated with legalizing cannabis. We know that's coming. We know costs will be also coming. 
And we know Hamilton isn't exactly flush with money, so here we are. Uh, Sam, one of the things that, I, I don't know where you stand on this, I don't know what your expectations are, but I just can't help but think that especially early on when this is legalized, there is going to be a huge strain on police and on bylaw to try and figure out how this thing is going to work. That's going to take a lot of manpower, a lot of woman power to try and sort this thing out right when it comes down. There's no doubt about it, particularly when we're dealing with the illegal dispensaries that are popping up like mushrooms right now throughout the city. Um, it's it's going to be um, an uphill battle for for the initial phase, and hence the reason why I, I'm and others are concerned uh, that we really don't have a plan of action on how we're going to, to fund that initiative. Well, and there's also the second part is we already know, and I mean, alcohol, you've alluded to it. It's a, it's alcohol can be a problem as well. We it's know kids, problem, and we know kids try to get it. We know they try and find people who will buy them booze. You got to believe there's going to be kids, younger people under 19 yep. who are going to be trying to get legalized, not to them, but legalized marijuana handed to them. That's going to be requiring people to be monitoring and to be checking out and all those other things. I, it seems like, especially until it gets sorted out, it's going to be a huge issue to make sure this thing works. Particularly when it, other policing issues, like for instance, uh, vehicular use, right? Using un, driving while you're impaired on cannabis. Um, there, there's going again. Uh, we haven't even identified half the actual pressures that we're going to be subjected to, and that's why we need to go through this exercise to ensure that we have a full and thorough assessment of uh, what it's going to mean to us, how it's going, how much it's going to cost us, and um, so we can actually request of the province. That, it, that it's funded accordingly. And over and above that, the, the worst case scenario should be revenue neutral. Um, but hopefully they actually look at uh, giving us even more programming or enhancing programming as it pertains to addictions in public health. Where would this all fall to? I mean, there's not a specific office, I don't think, that's going to be called the legalized cannabis. So is this all just to bylaw? Is this to police and bylaw? Where would you expect that this is going to be handled? Well, public health would be primarily the... I would say the first step, so our medical officer of health um, would be our first point of contact, but she could take the lead on it from a public health perspective, but it would be a multi, a multi-task or a multi-agency uh, task force approach. So you would, have, you would have police, you would have bylaw, you would have public health, um, all sitting at the same table uh, to ensure that, and licensing, to ensure that uh, everybody uh, assesses their part of it and, and what, how they can fit into the into the mix of having a thorough approach on ensuring that the transition is done so in a manner that's that's coherent, that's competent, consistent, and predictable. But more importantly, that is funded by by the revenue that's going to be created from the sale of cannabis, rather than going to the taxpayers, a task them for money, oh, because ultimately the money that is created from this from this now what is, what is now going to be an industry uh, should be paying for that. We know that not, I mean, the whole idea of this is to decriminalize a lot of the marijuana use. So these are not, even if someone's charged, it's probably going to be more likely with a bylaw infraction than with a criminal code, which well, means... Well, criminal code if you're selling without, see, if you are if you have a dispensary, right. you're selling. So right now, these are popping up like mushrooms throughout the city because they know that we're in a, we're in a transitional period where they, the legal ones aren't up and running yet. They also know, um, and they call them criminals because they are, it's all criminally intent, uh, is that they're functioning knowing that if they do get charged, once it becomes legal, the probability is a crown attorney will throw it all out. Um, so they're just taking advantage and, and manipulating the opportunity now. But once, once the legal 
locations are up and running, the plan is uh, full force to shut them all down. But now, that's but some of it is going to be bylaw, uh, criminal stuff for sure. But some of it's going to be bylaw, and, and the reason I ask this is. If it's a criminal thing, we have the Crown Attorneys, we have the legal system that is provincially funded, whereas if it's a bylaw thing and someone says, you know what, I've been charged, and a whole bunch of people say, I've been charged, but I'm going to challenge this in court because I don't think these bylaws can hold up. Is that your legal department then? No, but it's not a a bylaw because right now, these illegal dispensaries, we're not licensing them. They're just running. No, I'm sorry, Sam. I'm talking about once this becomes legalized and there is a dispensary and there becomes some bylaw infractions. If a bunch of people get charged with a ticket for something, that doesn't. That's then your legal department that would have oh, to fight I see. this, correct? You mean the usage. Yes, the yes. Usage, not the selling of it. No. Okay, that's a good point. So, for instance, the same enforcement for tobacco will be applied to the cannabis use. For so, you won't be able to smoke uh, in a restaurant or in a patio. Yeah, so it would fall into the same enforcement branch, except now we're going to be dealing with a whole new segment of population that didn't exist prior. So you're right, the demand's going to be be higher, but the enforcement will be the same, and so will the convictions. And the courts will set a precedent quite clearly on the outset, only to prevent any manipulation in the future. One more thing before I let you go. Um this is a an optimistic view to bring forward. I, and, and I mean, I, I think it's an important thing to bring forward, but it's an optimistic thing that the province and the federal government are going to say, yeah, we will help with this. Do you, do you do this expecting that they're going to say, yeah, we'll help out, or do you do this to point out when taxes potentially have to go up that we did all we could to try and make this thing work? No, they will. Ultimately, the question becomes, though, we just haven't had any indication from them of what they're planning on doing, which is the worst case scenario, right? So ultimately, through our public health department, I think uh, there will be a formula in place. Uh, the problem is they don't have the formula in place, nor have they communicated what that firm formula might be, uh, hence my concern. And so in essence, this is really trying to bring to the forefront uh, the importance of having at least an understanding of what their plan is and how we're going to be able to mitigate our pressures and our costs uh, accordingly. Councillor Sam Marul, I really appreciate the time. Happy New Year, sir. Likewise, Scotty, and all the best. Uh, you will be hearing more about this, because even for those of you who don't love the idea of legalized marijuana in the country, well, now you're going to have extra costs to go along with it, along with your dissatisfaction. So there, Happy New Year for that. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show. Weeknights from 6 to 8, only on 900 CHML. If you've been listening to the station all day, you've been hearing on all the news updates the story that has been talked about a lot here and elsewhere about this mathematical formula that a hundred of our top executives in this country, the CEOs, a hundred of the wealthiest CEOs in Canada, made more by 11 a.m. today, roughly, than you will make all year long. Which, of course, is raise your fist in the air and wave it at the angrily at whoever because that's unfair. That's not right that those executives, that those CEOs would make that much money. All right. I will admit that it's an awful lot of money to make. It's an awful lot of money to make. That they're averaging apparently $10 million a year, these top 100 CEOs. They're averaging are averaging $10 million each in pay. That's a lot of money. That is slightly more than Bill Kelly makes here at CHML doing the morning. Slightly. Bill's only at 9.7. He's holding out this year that he's going to get up to the... T- no, that's not true. Anyway, I couldn't help but think of this today as I'm hearing so many people talking about this story 
And so many people expressing exasperation at the amount of money that CEOs are making. And anger, in a lot of cases, at the amount that CEOs are making. And I'm sitting there listening to this, thinking to myself, okay, I gotta say, I mean, it's a lot of money. Not some kind, not the amount of money that I will ever understand, or probably you. Maybe somebody listening makes $10 million a year. I don't know, but very few. But I couldn't help but think, wait a second, where is the, this is very selective outrage, isn't it? Where is the outrage when an actor, and we go to see the movies, is making $20 million or $25 million for a movie? I don't hear any of the same people who are screaming and yelling about the CEOs having the same outrage about an actor or about a musician. How much money do you think Taylor Swift made last year? Or Katy Perry? Or, I don't know, name your big top-of-the-world music star. I, I bet you the top 100 musicians last year made a whole lot more than $10 million each. And I don't hear any outrage about them making that money. I can't even count the number of athletes who made $10 million overall. I mean, I'm talking all across all sports. The number of athletes who made $10 million, I can't keep track of it. But I don't hear a lot of outrage, I mean, momentary outrage. Oh, someone signed a big contract. He's not worth that much. But then we forget about it. There's no outrage about athletes making this much money. So I'm trying to figure out why it is that we're so bent out of shape about CEOs making money when there are so many other people. And, and by the way, not all CEOs. We're very selective in which CEOs we have a real problem with too. Don't forget this. Because I can remember... Remember about how long ago was it now when they had the Occupy Wall Street movement and it was a big, big deal, maybe seven, eight years ago. I don't know what it was. And watching all these people being outraged, being livid about the fact that there were a lot of people making a lot of money on Wall Street. And meanwhile, what were they using to voice their outrage to the world? Largely Apple products, iPhones and iPads and everything else. You know how much money Steve Jobs made in his life? You know how much money the guys who work at the top levels of the executives of Apple make? But I guess that's okay. No one ever makes a fuss. I've never heard anybody make a fuss about the executives of Apple because those are cool products. We like those products. So we're not, we don't have a problem with those executives. If it's a cool technology product, oh, I'm okay with that. I just look at this whole thing, and i, I got to be honest. My whole feeling today when I heard this outrage was, and I and feel free to disagree with me if you feel otherwise, but my impression from almost every person I heard who was talking about this today, jealousy. That's what it was, jealousy. Because as someone pointed out, there is a sense that I can't do what Sidney Crosby does. I can't do, clearly, what Taylor Swift does. I can't do what whoever does. But I don't really understand what the heck it is that the CEOs do. So probably I could do that job. And so if they're making that much money, that's outrageous. That's outrageous that they would make that much money. I just didn't understand it today. I didn't get it. And here's the one thing. Someone also said, yeah, but the CEOs, you work for them. You don't have to pay the athletes. If you don't want to support the athlete or the actor or whomever, you don't have to. I'm going to tell you that's not true. And I'm going to tell you why. 
let's say you're not a hockey fan, so you say, well, I don't, it doesn't matter to me what Sidney Crosby makes because I don't support hockey. I don't watch hockey. I don't go to hockey games. I don't buy hockey tickets. Therefore, it makes no difference. He can make whatever he wants. You do pay for Sidney Crosby's contract. You do, and I'll tell you why. Because Sidney Crosby's contract is paid for partly by tickets, but in large part by TV revenues. Channels, networks, buy the rights to the NHL so they can show them. How do you think they pay for those millions of dollars they give to the NHL or to the teams? They sell advertising. Who pays for the advertising? The advertisers. Do you think that McDonald's or Molson's or any of the other companies, the thousands of companies that advertise on TV, do you think they do that out of the goodness of their heart? No, they have marketing monies. They have marketing budgets and the marketing budgets, who pays for those? That comes out of the cost. So every time you go to McDonald's or go buy this or go buy that, you're paying for the athletes or the actors or the musicians or whomever else. I just don't get it. I just don't understand how we can't see that being upset at the CEOs, but not being upset at actors, actresses, musicians, hockey players, whatever else. It's the same thing. It's the same thing. But we somehow have not been able to figure that out. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show. Weeknights from 6 to 8. Only on 900 CHML. I was reading a really interesting piece today, an opinion piece in the Toronto Star. The headline is diversity more than a brand. And it was a fascinating piece because very often now uh, the word diversity has become almost a catchphrase that we have to have diversity. We need diversity. But what exactly does that mean? And are we doing it for the right reasons or are we doing it just so as a corporation we can say, oh yeah, we have a diverse roster. We do diversity. We're all about diversity. Because it's great to say you're doing it. But why are we doing it? What does it mean? And what are we trying to achieve? And are we doing it right? And all those kind of things. Well, the author of that piece. Her name is Priya Ramsing. Uh, she's also the author of a new book called Brown Girl in the Room. Uh, she joins me now. Priya, thanks for doing this tonight. Hi there. Uh, how are you tonight? I'm great, thank you. How e- are you, Scott? Excellent, thank you. So let me try to paraphrase, if I can, what you mm-hmm. wrote today in one sentence, and then you can tell me how close I am to getting this one right. Uh, diversity often is something that companies will do because they are supposed to do it because it's the thing to do right now, uh, or because it's seen as good for business. And while potentially or really it is good for business, we're not always doing it for all the right reasons. Yes, that's true. Is that pretty close? I would say that's pretty close. Yes. So what brought you then to the point to say that what made you decide that we are or that companies or whomever is not always doing diversity for the appropriate or for the good reasons? I mean, why did I write the piece? Yeah. Um, I wrote the piece. The piece is a little, is, um, an op-ed piece, but it, it sort of has a similar theme to the novel that I just wrote, which is called Brown Girl in the Room, which is a fiction story along the same lines about a woman of color being hired based on a diversity quota and, and what, it, what that means for her. Um, I wanted to write the piece because I read an, an article about um, Apple's chief diversity officer, Denise Young, Denise Young-Smith, who, who made a statement last year saying that uh, diversity could be described as a room of blonde-haired, blue-eyed males who bring different opinions to the table. And she made this comment last year, and um, apparently a couple months later she had to resign and um her comments were, you know, went viral on social media, and they were wonder- people were wondering, why would she make such a statement? 
And then I thought it inspired me to write this op-ed that I wrote and sent it into the Toronto Star. Is there, um, okay, there's, I mean, there's a lot already to chew on here. So at, at the, what is your background, first of all, in this? Are you uh, at the risk of being indelicate? And I don't know, I mean, anytime you have these conversations, you walk a fine line. But at the risk of being indelicate, uh, based on the name of your book, would you be someone who might fall into the diversity category? Sure. Have I, you experienced this? Yes. Well, yeah, I, 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 would be, I would be that person. I mean, I would be considered a brown woman. Um, because I am from, I was born in Trinidad, but I came here when I was five. So although I consider myself Canadian because my values are Canadian and I was brought up as a Canadian, I do still look like somebody who would be put into that diverse category. Yes, for sure. And so when that comes up, if, if there was to be a hiring and you were to be applying at a company, are you someone who loves the idea that you will fall into the, to fit the diversity check mark or do you look at that and say mm, that's a mixed blessing that that happens because I want to get hired simply because of the abilities that I have I do want to get hired because of the abilities that I have and what I can bring to the table and my skill set for sure on the other hand um, you know it really is important that um, people like myself women of color people of color are being given opportunities you know to be in leadership roles in organizations so it's a bit of a mixed blessing. We want to be hired and we want to be um, recognized for our leadership abilities and our skills and what we bring to the table, but we don't only want to be hired um, because of the color of our skin. So it's sort of... Um, you don't want to be, I mean, again, without being indelicate, you don't want to, as I understand it, be just a mannequin so the company can say, hey, look, look what we've got. We've got lots of different people that look different in our office. Exactly. Does that happen though? Do you think? You know, it's it's hard to prove that it happens like that. That is exactly what's happening. But I'm I'm pretty sure that um, that it 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 does happen. I mean, I've been asked that diversity question in in several interviews, and and I don't really know how to answer it. What, like, what um, kind of question do they ask? What does diversity mean to you? <laughs> okay, let me ask that question. And you say you don't know how to answer it, but let me leave out the to you part. So what, first, very basically, what is, when we talk about an office place or anything else, what is diversity? Well, diversity really, it means just a variety, right? It, it's, it's, it can be a variety of, of anything. But I believe companies are, are trying to adopt this whole idea of a diverse workplace, meaning that they want to hire um, people from various backgrounds. And, and it's not just, you know, ethnicity. It's, it's various uh, backgrounds, various cultures, you know, uh, people who are... Um, you know, who have disabilities and, um, you know, different um, sexual orientations. They want to make sure that they have um, employees that are from different um, groups, not just one particular group. So I believe that's what they are trying to achieve with the whole diversity mandate. But it just feels like it's, um, it's you know, you're, you're kind of hiring these people just for that reason. Well, you in your piece, and it was an interesting word, I had never thought of it before, you refer to it as a novelty. Yeah, it's a novelty sometimes. Sometimes it can be. The the part about this that becomes, to me, so interesting is all the things that you just talked about, to hire people who have disabilities or who are different from us, those are all good things. Like, we want to incorporate those people into our workplaces, I think. But at the same time, as you say, we don't want to do it just as a showpiece so that if you have someone walk through your office 
Or if someone says, well, how diverse are you? You can make it almost like a sales pitch. Like we're better. We've got a great office because there's got to be more to it than that. Yes. I agree. The, the common perception then is that in our society, I think, tell me if I'm wrong on this one, diversity is almost always a visual thing. That's, that's how I, that's how a lot of people I think see it is that when people talk about a diverse workplace, it's a visual thing. If I see someone looks at it's not about diversity of thought though, is it? Or is it? It's not a... Well, when we talk about diversity, we oftentimes will talk about, so you walk into an office and the, the appearance of the people in there are very different. We have a broad range visually of people from different cultures, from different genders, uh, people with disabilities, but we we're not always talking. And you had referred to the woman from Apple. Uh, when we talk about diversity, we're not always talking about diversity of opinion. It's more of a visual thing often. Yes. A visual. Yes. What it, what it looks like. So what about, what about that woman from, I mean, you, you go back, you, in your, in your piece, you doubled back and went back to talk about her. What about her idea? I mean, it was, as you say, it was something that basically she had to resign because she said, you can have diversity, even if everybody looks the same, if their opinions are different. What about that Mm -hmm. comment? Well, I understand what she was trying to say. She was really going back to the whole premise that diversity is, you know, a variety. And she's saying that, you know, it could be a variety of opinions, even though, those opinions are come from people who look the same, but um, what I the idea behind my my article is that I'm not sure that um, that society is ready to hear that yet, because while she can make that comment, she's she's a woman of color and she understands that diversity is more than just appearance, you know. But I do believe that um, it's and and what I said in my article in my op-ed is that we're not we may not be ready to uh, embrace that yet because as you mentioned, Scott, it's about um, appearance. It's about what people see. It's about the visual. And the whole diversity brand is about, um, you know, we're a diverse organization or we're a diverse city. I mean, Toronto is, um, you know, our motto is diversity is our strength. Well, what does that mean? Does that mean we have, you know, all different types of people here who, you know, are from whose backgrounds are are from you know different countries all around the world, and everybody looks different. And um, but it is visual, and so I think, in in one some ways, that's good because we've reached that step where we're trying to embrace people who look different. And then maybe the next step is to understand that okay, so we may look different, um, and and that's okay that we look different. And now we can move into the next step of okay, so now we all have differing opinions. Do you have, okay, let's say that you were high, you were the boss and you had an office and you were doing all the hiring. Is it a diverse office if you have visually all kinds of different people from different cultures and different genders and different whatever, but Mm -hmm. everybody shares basically the same philosophy and politics? Is that a diverse office? Well, if everybody, it's a visually diverse office. Yes. Yes, it is. No, and that's, this is the tricky part, right? Because it's, there are different, different, I guess, definitions, I would think, of what diversity actually means. Yes. And the, the idea would be, and this, this, again, I find this the fascinating part of what you wrote, that I think the idea is that if I hire somebody from wherever, I assume they are bringing their worldview and their philosophies and their beliefs into the office and theirs is going to be different from mine. Mm-hmm. But what if 
everybody shares the same one. Do we really then have a diverse office or are we really just, we may be different colors and different races, but we're really thinking the same way. Is that diversity? I don't know the answer to that question. Well, that's a really good point because um, I believe that's actually, you've actually hit, to me, that's the key to how we can we can change this whole um, mindset of, of making diversity only visual because people tend to hire, and I believe that um, there's been, there have been studies on this, people tend to hire others who remind them of themselves because there's a comfort, there's a familiarity. So if you hire somebody who looks like yourself, chances are they think like you, and therefore you have a little culture in your, your um, work environment of comfort that there's nobody who's going to think differently because then, then it's going to be, you know, it's going to be changed. There's going to be, it's going to be too difficult. So we tend to sort of stick with what we know. And you're absolutely right. It's not just, it's not just about visual. It's about mindset. But there's this perception that, you know, somebody who looks like us may tend to think like us. Well, we've and talked. That's not always the case. We've talked on the show, and we've had uh, Lindsay Shepard on. Now, I, I don't know if you follow this story from Wilfrid Laurie of the teaching assistant who was called on the carpet for showing a video that the professors seemingly on mass disagreed with. Now, they were not all looking exactly the same, but there was kind of a group think it seemed. And again, I go back to the idea: even if you, how do you, how do you find, or how do you define? And not just you, I don't mean, uh, I mean, in general, the big you, how do you define what diversity is? Because as I understand it, one of the really tricky parts about this is that if you, it's been a long time since I did a job interview, I'll be honest, but you can't ask someone now, hey, what's your political view or where do you lean philosophically or what do you think about necessarily this? Those kind of things, you can't ask someone that, can you? So you have to assume based on their background or based on their color or based on their gender, what you think they're going to think, correct? Mm-hmm. Yes, true. It's, it becomes a very complicated thing to try and find real diversity. And I, I found the piece today, by the way. I mean, I found it really, really good. It's in the Toronto Star. Uh, is diversity more than a brand? It's by Priya Ramsing. Um, just before I let you go. How do you solve this then? Because you've brought up a great point here about that this is more than just let's find people with different skin color and call it diversity. You've, it's, it's a great point you make. How do you resolve this then? Well, the first step is, is self-awareness. Like we have to, the only way that we can change is if we understand our behavior and what we're doing. And if we, you know, start, let's just say we're, we're working in an office and we have to hire some people. Look at the way we hire. Are we only tend, are we, do we tend to only veer towards those candidates that remind us of ourselves, you know, why not branch out and try and explore and, and hire different people or interview different people who are different? Because different people may bring different experiences. They may have different backgrounds, but that means they, they, have, they may bring different experiences and different a set of skills. And that actually will make your workplace stronger because you have a variety of um, not just people who are from different cultures, but from, you know, with different mindsets, perhaps. But the first step is self-awareness. Be aware of what we're doing and be aware of our behavior and step outside our comfort zone a little bit because that's the only way that we're going to really accept everybody for who they are instead of trying to force ourselves to, you know, fill a diversity quota. And are you even talking there again, to go back to the point, are you even talking about philosophical differences? That if you're a boss and let's say you are a conservative and the person you're interviewing has very liberal views, are you even talking about that? Let's, let's not have, even if they look different, let's make sure we have some people who think differently too. 
you absolutely have to have people who think differently because that's the only way you're going to have a successful organization, in my opinion, as, as I'm also a small business owner. And you want people with different views and different opinions because they may bring something to the table that you are not able to see yourself. If you have a whole group of people who just think the same and look the same, I mean, what's like that's not a very um, it doesn't fit the co- it doesn't it doesn't exactly fit uh, what we're talking about at all. Uh, I would encourage people to go and read this Priya Ramsing. The piece is called "Is Diversity More Than a Brand?" It's at the Star website right now. Uh, excellent piece that I really uh, get gets you thinking, and I appreciate you taking the time to talk about it tonight. Well, thank you very much. Thanks for having me on the show. Thank you. Okay. Uh, again, go look at it. Is diversity more than a brand? The basic premise of this is, I think, and as she says. We do a lot these days to hit the diversity marks. We want to believe, we want to set uh, the table that our office, that our company, that our this, our that is diverse. Diversity, we need to have diversity. Diversity is a catchphrase now, but what does it actually mean? And even if you achieve some level of diversity by having people who look different from each other so that we've had someone from this country and this country, and we've brought a lot of different people from parts of the world. If everybody thinks exactly the same, have we really achieved anything? Now, the one thing I didn't ask, and I should have, but I think I know the answer. If everybody looked the same but thought different, would that be diversity? Well, I guess that would be diversity, although it probably wouldn't fit exactly what we're talking about here. But it's a really, it's a, it's a really interesting topic that I've thought about for a long time. Diversity of thought. We do, we're doing much better at diversity of appearance. We don't do as well generally examining and inspecting and and doing a thing with diversity of thought. Oftentimes in our culture, we still, we will happily, most people, surround ourselves with people of different skin color, different of different back, people of different backgrounds, people with disabilities, people with whatever. We are, we're pretty good at that for the most part, but very often we live in a bubble and surround ourselves with people who think exactly like us. We don't want to have people who will say something or have a belief or a philosophy that is different from us. We don't do well at that. We're good at the first. We're good at the visual, getting better at the visual. We're not as good at branching out and having people who have different thoughts and different ideas from us. Well, that's part of it too. One more time. Is diversity more than a brand? Go read it. It's at the Star website right now. It's a really, really interesting piece. The Scott Radley Show. The Scott Radley Show. Weeknights from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML.